helpful, but you need to be wise in even how you apply these things. What we've been talking about is indeed wisdom. But the wisdom that we have been talking about as we've gone through Matthew chapter 5 is not wisdom like this. It is not limited in its scope. It is important and good for us in all forms and fashions that Jesus is always applicable, good, and right. He's not limited in the way that Kenny Rogers or Michael Scott or Benjamin Franklin are. He is the Lord of all. He speaks with all wisdom and all insight and might and his right. Judgments are always good and true. Furthermore, what he is giving is not quite advice. He's not saying, hey, this might be helpful for you. You can take this or you can leave it. But he's saying that all who are wise will take his words and apply them to his lives. If you desire to be wise, if you desire to flourish in the kingdom of Jesus Christ, these are the very things that you must strive for. So let us continue to listen to the words of our Lord this morning as we take on the last three of the six examples of what Jesus calls the righteousness that is greater than the scribes and the Pharisees. And here, in these three examples, we're no longer dealing with brothers or sisters. We're no longer dealing with those who are close to us, husbands and wives, but we are dealing with people that are outside of that sort of narrow scope. They're not an inside circle of people, but an outside circle of people. Those we might interact with in public, those who we might have business interactions with, even to those who would hurt us and are considered our enemies. How should we strive for a greater righteousness? Jesus helps to guide us in this. Let us listen to his words from chapter 5, verse 33. There our Lord says, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, Turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard it said, or you have heard it, that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of our God. 
So we consider these three examples that Jesus gives to us of how we are to live our lives pursuing a greater righteousness. The first thing that I would put before you is that we need to use accurate language. We, we need to use accurate language. The saying, you have heard that it was said, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord which you have sworn, does not come from maybe one particular verse in the Old Testament, but it's sort of a, a collection of verses in the Old Testament, Leviticus 19, Deuteronomy 23, Psalm 50, Ecclesiastes 5, which, which call people to actually do the oaths that they have taken on. If you vow something, you ought to carry it out. And as far as it goes, it's right. The point is, if you are going to make a vow, you are to be sure to keep it. Don't, as they say, swear falsely. Don't, don't swear knowing that you have no intention of keeping the thing that you have sworn to. Jesus' greater righteousness, though, seems to stand directly against this. Rather than emphasizing that you ought to keep your oaths, which is exactly what that is doing, he says simply, don't take them at all. His explanations of this are something that are kind of difficult for us to get at, but we can make sense of them, I think. The greatest vow that one could take, the greatest thing that you could swear on, would be God himself. As a matter of fact, Hebrews says that God does this in Hebrews 6, when it says that when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom, he, by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. So the greatest thing that you could swear by was God. This was not something that would ever be done lightly, and thus was probably rarely done by Jews at all, although in Sunday school we had an indication of that this morning, somebody who swore by the very living God. But Jews generally, especially at this time, would have avoided this, the same way they avoided saying the name Yahweh. There's no way they would swear on the person of God and so what they did was they came close to it. They, they swore by the things of God. They swore by incredibly important things. They would swear by heaven. They would swear by the earth. They would swear by Jerusalem. These things that quite clearly have their import because God is near to them. God is close to them. At some level, Jesus' point is pretty simple. Listen, if, if, you, if you swear by heaven, we, we know what makes heaven important. Like, you, you think that you're avoiding swearing on God, but we all know what you're getting at. If you were to say something like, as God lives, I will do this thing, that statement is nothing short of using the Creator Himself as a token of your trust. And therefore, is at best a grave misunderstanding of who our God is, and at worst, it's just rank blasphemy. And Jesus is saying, don't fool yourselves. Swearing by those things is in no wise different from swearing on the very nature of God. Heaven is the throne where God sits. Would you remove the throne from heaven? The earth is indeed his footstool. Would you remove God's presence from the earth? And Jerusalem is the place of the great king. All of these have their importance from God. They are there because of God and they are due to God. What's more, you can't control those. To bring that point home, he talks about swearing on your head. You have no control over your head. You can't control the color of your hair. You can't control the quality or the quantity of your hair. You have no control over those things. Why swear on them? So Jesus concludes very simply, let your yes be your yes and your no 
be your no. Do not swear. And here we run into something of an interesting problem. Two issues, really. First, what is it that means that we don't swear an oath or a vow? What, what is an oath or a vow? Should we include promises? After all, that seems to be what Hebrews was saying, that God swore by himself when he made a promise. So are, are we not to use promises? Are we able to use oaths, like solemn oaths, but we, we can't promise things? What, what kind of language can or can't we use? And second, how literal is Jesus being? Is Jesus saying, you shouldn't ever do anything that's like that? Or are there only like kind of certain times when, when he really means that we can't take an oath? The early church, interestingly enough, very early, prior to 310, 320, was pretty much unanimous on Jesus' words here being literal, that we were never to take any oaths. We were never to swear by anything at all. We were never to make promises or make vows or do anything like that. Later on, smallish groups within the church began to take Jesus literally again. But in between those years, the church made a pretty strong pivot, and they said that Jesus wasn't being literal here. He was exaggerating as he did before. We can make certain kinds of oaths. We can vow certain kinds of things. We even talked last week about the fact that when we come before the Lord in marriage, we take vows together. We promise things to one another. The Reformers caught on to this, as one commentator said, and they, they made this distinction between making and taking oaths. He said, you can take an oath. So if the state comes to you, and they says, in order to be in the military, in order to be a witness on the stand, in order to do X, Y, or Z, you need to take an oath. They were very clear that that was perfectly legitimate because somebody was requiring it out of you. But you were not able to make an oath on your own. This was the idea that you're not allowed to simply pump up your word by promising great things along with it. I must say that as I've studied through here, I was perfectly on par with the reformers, but I'm not sure that I am anymore. I think that Jesus is probably being more literal here than we would give him credit for, but I'm not going to swear to it. Uh, so, you know, if, if you think otherwise, it's fine. You are free to do that. This isn't a big deal. And I think that both of those questions, whether Jesus is being literal and how much we should take oaths and vows and promises to be the same, can kind of be summed up a little bit easier than taking those head on. The end issue is not so much with the oaths themselves. The main issue is with what's happening in the rest of everyday speech. The oath basically becomes a scapegoat to kind of sidestep the normal consequence of the fact that people were just not true to their word. So on one level, you, you've got this, this sort of normal words that you use to describe everyday language and to talk to people. And sometimes you're telling the truth, sometimes you're being deceitful, sometimes you really mean it, Sometimes you're lying. Sometimes it's faithless. But then over here, you've got these moments where you really need people to believe you. You're making a business deal or you're making a promise to somebody and you know that they're going to have qualms or questions about 
how true you are to your language. And so here you're going to say, well, I, listen, I will make a vow to you. I promise you that this is going to be the case. The point that Jesus is making is almost best made by, in a sense, turning everything on its head and not saying, get rid of oaths altogether, but the way in which you make an oath, the truthfulness by which you speak an oath, that's how you should speak in every single thing you say. Don't rely upon oaths and promises and vows to get people to believe your word. Your word should be believable because it's coming from you. Say yes and say no and mean it and keep it. When you do so, you don't need to make oaths. You don't need to make vows. We understand that there are times when you're going to speak incorrectly. Perhaps words come out of your mouth wrong. Perhaps those words are misunderstood. You have every intention of doing something and you legitimately forget or you, you get caught doing something else. You are not God. You cannot make your word come true. We have this, this incident even in 2 Corinthians. Paul promised the Corinthians he would come. He didn't promise because he didn't make a vow, but, but he, he's told them he was going to come and then he wasn't able to come. He was hindered and they, they're holding this against him. And his whole point is, I, I, I don't know what you want from me. I, I, we can't make the future happen. This is what happened on, on Sunday. People will come up to me and they'll say, hey, can you do this throughout the week? And I'll say, yes. And on Sunday, I've got 25,000 things going on. And so I tell them, almost to a person, every time somebody asks me to do this, if it's not done by Tuesday, Text me, call me, so that I can make sure that it's done. Because I guarantee you, 90% chance I'm going to forget the moment that we leave this place. It's not that I'm trying to. It's not that I'm putting it out of my mind. It's just that I'm forgetful. And what Jesus wants out of us is that we are doing everything we can to be true to our word. Knowing that we're still human, knowing that we're still frail, and that we will indeed fail at times. Speak the truth. Be an honest person. Be good to your word. Don't rely on oaths and vows to bail you out if you're disingenuous in other areas of your life. Remember, Matthew 12, 36, our Lord promises us that every idle word you speak will be judged. So speak the truth. We stand as representatives of God. Our God, above all other things, creates with words. He speaks and it is so. And so the Bible spends a good deal of time talking to us about our language. It talks to us about how we ought to speak, the things that we ought to say, and those things that we can't ever say. Because whether we like it or not, our speech is the way that we report what reality is. Small gods as we are, images of God as we are, our speech is to mimic our fathers. He speaks and creates. We speak and speak of that creation. But when we lie, when we treat words deceitfully, we are in a small and really foolish way, creating something of a false reality. We are trying to undo God's creation, even undo his providential unraveling of history and substituting our own for that. And so Jesus appends this discussion with very cutting words. He says, anything more than just giving your yes and your no comes from evil. 
That term should probably be best translated as evil one. It's going to come up three times in the sermon here and about two verses from now and then at the end of the Lord's Prayer in chapter 6. We, as children of God, ought to speak the truth in the way that God speaks the truth. But when you don't, when you're using language in order to get around the facts, when you are deceitful and faithless in what you're saying, you are not acting like a child of God, but you are acting like the child of one, the liar from the beginning who has always been deceitful, who has always been faithless. Do not speak like him. Use accurate language. Second, you are to have amazing limits. You are to have amazing limits. Eye for an eye is sometimes seen as some sort of Neanderthalic way of handling justice. But as we've talked about before when it came up in Exodus, it was and is this perfect illustration of what God wants justice to be. It assures that justice is to be done. It's not to be flippantly waved at and brushed aside, but it is to be actually carried out while at the same time making sure that those who are red in tooth and claw do not overzealously punish people. Is meant to be sure that things are always done rightly and proportionately. But as we also showed, the, the statement itself is not meant to be applied literally. If we are to have proportional justice, we understand that proportional doesn't mean the same. Even in Exodus, when we, we were given an example of what an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth meant, one of the first illustrations that Moses provides is of a slave who loses an eye. The master doesn't have his eye lost. The slave is set free. So even in the book of Exodus, when we have an eye for an eye, we know it's not literal. It means proportional. It means justice is to be rightly carried out. And yet Jesus has more to say about it. He says, you've heard that said, but I'm telling you, you are not to resist the evil one. That is one who is acting on behalf of Satan. One who does the very things that Satan would do. Just like our lies come ultimately from Satan, so the oppression and injustice of men is ultimately from Satan. It is evil in its nature, and it comes through the one who whispers into their heart. And Jesus says you are not to resist them. It's an incredibly difficult task. Nietzsche, this German philosopher, heard this and lamented in this one statement and other statements that Jesus made, whom he was not fond of at all, the collapse of everything that was great about Europe. He loved the ancient gods because they, they fought with strength. They fought with justice. They would take an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Nietzsche thought this is making every man effeminate. But it's important to note that what Jesus says here is not passive. He's not calling on you to be passive. He doesn't say, listen, if we just look at the first example that he uses of the four, probably the most famous of them, somebody slaps you on the cheek, he doesn't say, listen, what you got to do is lie down in the fetal position and beg for mercy, right? So just the, the best thing to do is just drop to your knees and just pray that, that the slapping stops, he says, rather, you, you stand in front of them and you give them the other cheek. My son and I, while my wife is gone, are watching the Rocky movies. 
the best grouping of like five or six movies that you ever have and a couple that never actually happened. And then we're, we're working through them. He's up to number three, which gave him a beautiful picture of the 1970s, by the way. But um, we're up to Rocky Three. We finished Rocky Three. And Rocky Three features Clubber Lang, who is the antithesis, the, the enemy. He's played by Mr. T. And Mr. T, at the height of his powers, he was a thing to behold. He was powerful and he was menacing. He was amazing. He was pictured not just as bad, but a man who can inflict terrible pain on his opponents, and he even predicted that he would. And during this final fight, we see Rocky literally asking for him to hit him in the face. Hit me as hard as you can. Swing harder. Harder. It wasn't passive. The reason why Rocky was doing that was to show, you're not hurting me. You're not strong enough to hurt me. Jesus is, in his own way, not exactly how Rocky is, right? He's not asking for you to be slugged in the face again, and if Mr. T hit you, you probably should just drop down into the fetal position and ask for it to stop. Even now, the guy's 65, and he's still menacing, although super kind Christian, it seems like. Um, Jesus is telling you to do the same. You would slap me in the face? Try again, son. It doesn't hurt you got to do better than that. Bruner's list, Dale Bruner makes a list of these four things. And he notes that none of these are passive. They're all active. You're doing something. You're not just turning away. Between Dale Bruner and Matthew Henry, they, they list these things as wrongs that are done to you and how you respond to them. The first in the slapping of the face is, is a wrong that's done to your person. Whether you think of that slap as physical or whether you think of it as an insult that is given to you, you are to get up and to show that what has happened to you is not so painful. What has happened to you is not the end of the world and you are to turn the other cheek. The second one is a wrong to your property. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic. Tunic is one of two things that people would typically wear. Worn as a a kind of a thin piece of fabric next to the body, the cloak being the outside bit. People ask for the tunic, you were to offer them the coat as well. The offering of the cloak along with the tunic is symbolic of the incredible greed of the person who would actually make you naked standing there with nothing covering you except possibly sandals. That's not just meant to show how crass and careless this enemy of yours is and how mean-spirited and ugly somebody would have to be to do something like that, but also to show that you believe and you trust, just as Jesus will say here in a moment, that if God can clothe the lilies of the field, why do I have to be concerned with what I'm going to cover myself with? It's a sign of trust in God. Notice again, this isn't simply a passive rolling over, but you're actively pursuing what what is more than they're asking for. A wrong to your liberty, the forcing of going a mile, was something that the Romans would do, that they were allowed to do to suppressed people like the Jews. And Jesus says, well, if they're asking you to go to a mile, say, okay, I will go an extra mile with you. The idea, again, is to turn the impression back on the oppressor, not just passively agreeing and going along with it, 
not just biding your time to make sure that you can get back at them to find some sort of retribution, but to show that you are more generous than they would even give you credit for. A wrong to your person, a wrong to your possessions, a wrong to your liberty, and a wrong to your generosity. Give, he says, to those who would beg of you. You'll notice that Jesus doesn't say, give precisely what they beg of you, but give to them. They ask you for a loan, kindly give it to them. The idea is that you are to be generous, not because they're asking you and you're going to give them something of small measure, but given the fact that he's talked about giving them the right cheek and giving them the cloak and going an extra mile, the idea here is that you are being generous to them. Perhaps not giving them the thing that they ask for, but giving them more than they asked for at any way. Notice how much faith something like this requires. All of this requires. You must base who you are and trust what you have to God. God is the one who gives honor. God is the one who gives property. God is the one who gives physical ability and labor. God is the one who gives money. If he gives those things to you, why should we think for a second that any man can truly take them from us? God will give, God will give again, and God will give again, and he will do so generously. So do not seek retaliation, but rather give even more than they ask. You must have amazing limits. The limits of your generosity should be incredibly high and above what people would even think to require out of you, even when they're doing you wrong. A couple of things I would put at the end of this. It is easy to read things like this and to think that this is always going to be true for other people. There are certain commandments that I always think of when I think of this. One of them is to honor your father and mother. It's very easy, and I think it's right for me to put that before my children. My children need to know that this is a commandment that God has given to them. And so there's a reason and a a way in which I am to put this before them. But if I am only putting it before them, then I am not actually listening to the commandment. Because as the commandment comes to me, it is not given to me so that I might give it to my kids. The commandment is given to me so that I might honor my father and mother. Same way, this commandment is given to you. So that when you see a brother or a sister being oppressed, when you see injustice being done, you don't look at them and say, well, you you know, you really just need to turn the other cheek. That commandment's for them. Jesus is not saying that justice shouldn't be done. And he's not saying that you shouldn't pursue justice. You pursue justice for others. You do right by others. You seek to end injustice and oppression as it happens to others. But you don't seek to do it for yourself. Jesus gives absolutely no rationale for why we do this either. He just tells us that we do, which is an amazing thing in and of itself, that Jesus is willing to get up and say things like, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but not for you. I think there is a reason why he doesn't, though, and that is the third portion of what he says today, which is that we are to show active love. We are to show active love. Certainly, you have heard it said that you shall love your neighbor 
comes directly from Scripture, Leviticus 19. The end of that, though, and hate your enemy, is likely just something that was attached on to the end of this to make sense of the whole thing. Because honestly, I think the people of the culture and the people of the day were kind of like, well, if we're just supposed to love everyone who comes by, how are we supposed to handle our enemies? And, and they kind of justified it by just tacking this on to the, the end of it and saying, well, you, you can hate your enemy, of course. And Jesus is very clear, no, 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 you, you can't hate your enemy. Here it's hard not to see the greater righteousness that Jesus points us toward is going directly against this saying. Not the love your neighbor part, but certainly the hating your enemy part. He says you have to love everyone. Love is to actively seek their good, not their recompense, not their retribution, not their pain, not their comeuppance. You are to do to them just as you would do to anyone whom you loved. What's more, you are to pray to God that they would be treated the same way by God. And sort of inverting it, right? Like, we know that we treat others in a certain way because God treats them that way, which is what Jesus is going to get at. But we need to pray that God would treat them the way we are treating them, that we love them. And so we pray that God would be kind to them as well. For the first time in the sermon, Jesus gives us a reason why we are to do this in verse 45 so that you may be sons of your father in heaven perhaps this is such a great ask of all the things that he has put forward before us he knows this is the toughest thing and so let me give you a rationale for this let me give you a reason why because this is how god acts and if you are going to be a child of god if you're going to be a child of your father who is in heaven you're going to truly walk in his footsteps and this is exactly what you have to be. When we give to people in benevolence, our church, we've struggled trying to find a reasonable relationship between how we steward what, what our church gives to us and how we are generous with people who come to us in need. This is a difficulty for anyone who has seen people suffering on the side of the road. You don't know if they are, if they're faking it. They're going to climb into their car and drive away after having that little homeless sign out there. You don't know how much people actually need the mercy that they're asking you for, and you don't know what they're going to do with it. After all, if you give mercy and they turn around and sin with it, people have, have talked as though that makes them somehow complicit in sin. But listen to how Jesus talks about the Father. When we do that, we, we have the best intentions. We want to be helpful, but we, we also don't want people to, to waste that help, to waste that mercy, to engage in sin in that. We want to be good stewards of the money that we are given, of the help that we can provide to other people. But listen, God knows the backstory on every single person. He knows the intentions of their heart. And what's more, God knows every single step that they're ever going to take. We, we don't know any of that. We might project that this person is lying. We might suspect that they are lying. We might know some of their backstory. We might not know anything about where they're going or what they're going to do. And even though God knows all of that, every day, Jesus says, he makes the sun come up. 
and it comes up upon people who are evil and on people who are good. And he brings the rain forward in its season. And every season that it comes, it falls down on people who are good and just. And it comes down on people who are evil and unrighteous. God knows that that life-giving sun and that life-giving rain are going to be used by those very creatures to blaspheme his name. That opportunity to life will be used by them. That mercy will be used by them. Not just to do evil to his other creatures, but to do evil to his name, to sin against him, to stand in rebellion against him. And yet, every day, the sun rises and every season the rains come because God is willing to be merciful even when he knows that people will throw it away when he knows that people will waste it he gives knowing his kindness will be rejected he gives knowing his mercy will be wasted he gives with full and perfect knowledge of the sinners that he gives to and the sin that they will do with it and still God gives And so should we. Our love is not to be passive, but it's active. We are not to love only in reaction to people. We don't wait to see how other people are going to act and then try and find out if they're worthy of our love and our mercy. We don't wait to see if they're friendly, if they're kind, if they're good. We don't wait to let them prove themselves. Jesus tells us, if if you act like that, if that's how you're going to love other people, then how are you any different from anybody else? Literally the worst people in the world act like that. Tax collectors, these, these epitome of sinners, people who have, who have seemingly betrayed their own country and betrayed their God, they will treat people well who treat them well. The Gentiles out there, the very ones who are oppressing you, Jews, they will act the same way. The worst dictators in the world, if you give them what they want, will treat you well. We are not to give only when we get. Our love is active, it's not passive. We don't wait to see the worthiness of a person, but we act in love regardless you can only show love and pray for those who do good to you, if you can only show mercy with those who sympathize with you, if you can only give good things to those who have done so to you, then you are only loving in response to what others do for you, and you are no different than the world. The tax collectors, traitors to the kingdom, the Gentiles, the enemies of the kingdom, you're no different than them. But the call to repentance the call to another kingdom, means that we must be different than they are. This is part of how we repent. We know that our way of walking in the world, which seems so wise and so right and so good and so normal and so filled with common sense that we love those who love us and those who are enemies of us we wish bad and evil upon. We know that that way of walking in the world is a path of death. And no matter how strange, no matter how difficult it might seem, that Jesus is holding out for us the path of true life and flourishing. Therefore, even if it seems silly and backwards, and people tell us 
that we are throwing our money away, when people tell us that we're wasting our time, when people tell us that we're opening up ourselves to pain and loss at the hands of wicked people, we simply say and believe and understand that so our Father did with us. When we were sinners, Christ died for us. When we deserved hell, our Father gave us mercy. When we were unkind and unloving, he showed us grace. He loved us when we were enemies. How then can we possibly do otherwise? Love actively in your life. The starting place of everything we do, of all of our actions and thoughts, must be on God. We are indeed made in his image. We are to model every aspect of our lives around him. What is good is what God is and what God does. If God shows mercy, we show mercy. If God loves, we love. If God hates this, we hate that. Doing so will put us out of step with the world. It will at times put us out of step with our culture, with our families, with our friends, with our coworkers. But it connects us directly to God through the grace of Jesus Christ. We are adopted. We are sons and daughters of the great King. Let us walk like it. Theologians have a concept that's important to understand how God acts. There's a $5 word coming up, so if you want to write it down, this is good. God is not abstentatious. What it means is God doesn't hold himself back. He's not, he's not withholding things. That when God acts, he does so always with the fullness of his being. He's always present with you, giving you all of his attention and time. His attention doesn't waver from you. His love doesn't waft. His mercy doesn't cease. His kindness does not dry up. He always acts from the fullness of who he is. In other words, he is complete and whole in everything that he does. When God acts, he acts in his fullness. He doesn't hold something back. That is precisely what Jesus means here. In verse 48, when he says, therefore, you must be perfect. He means you must be complete. You must be whole. Every action that you take, every word you speak, every interaction that you have with somebody ought to come from the wholeness of who you are. It ought to have all of you in it. And all of you ought to be dedicated to God because of what Jesus Christ has done for us and uniting us to God by dying a death that we deserve, being resurrected to give us life, adopting us and taking us in as brothers and sons and daughters of our God on high. We are called to walk faithfully before him, to be him in the world. So let us act as complete and whole people. We are to be holy as God is holy, we are to be complete as God is complete. Let us do so. Pray with me, please. Our Father, you have promised by your Spirit and the work of Jesus our Lord to mold us into the image of Jesus Christ. 
He, like a lamb before the slaughter, did not raise his voice. He did not resist the evil one. But he loved his enemies. And he is always good to his word. Help us to be these things from the very center of our being. Let us pursue a greater righteousness. Give us power for aid, grace for failure, that your great might might be seen in us. We ask for all of this. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. If you would stand and sing our song of response with us, there is a Redeemer.